Uh, all right, so we have several statements and attitudes that help us make decisions here at South Spring. Uh, when we face any kind of uncertainty in decision-making, um, these, these principles, these, um, these statements, these, you know, whatever, they help keep us on target. And in some way, we revisit them every year in January. Um, it's kind of funny because every year when I'm doing it, I'm thinking, oh gosh, we, you know, uh, halfway through the year or December, November, I'm thinking about doing it again. I'm like, we just did those. And then we get here again, and I don't remember what I said last year. I can't even find it. And so I know if I don't, you probably don't either remember what I said. So that's why we do it. It's, we talked about us as humans. We're such flawed and, and frail creatures, and we need those reminders. We need those Ebenezers. We need things to remind us to get back on target. I don't know if it's true or not. It's one of the things that preaches so well, it makes me doubt it. But the idea that, that like um, uh, when you're on an airplane, that it's only all actually on target like 2% of the time. It's only actually on, and the rest of the time it's making an adjustment. Again, that preaches so well. I'm just like, eh, probably not true. But, but, it's, but it's still, there's a principle there that says we're always needing to make course adjustments. Welcome to the human race. And we're always having to adapt and get back on track and listen to our shepherd because like sheep, we just love to wander off. And so um, I'd love to come back to these. We have a, for example, we have a mission statement. It says, we exist to live, teach, and tell the gospel so that all may encounter the living God. Now, obviously, um, that's an obvious and intentional and unapologetic ripoff from the Great Commission, which I'm going to reference in a second. If you check church mission statements, especially evangelical churches, and you go to the web and you search them, 90% of them are and should be an obvious ripoff from the Great Commission. Um, it's just a shortening and simplification of it. This was the one we developed when we were First Baptist Tyler South Campus. Um, we've seen no reason to adjust it. Neither have they, by the way. This is still, also still their mission statement. Um, and so it th comes from Matthew 28, which is a passage that if you're in leadership in church, um, you need to read on a regular basis. Jesus came and said to them, this is him speaking to the early apostles right before he's going to leave, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we could unpack that for a while, but we're not going to. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's why we exist. We go. We go from this building. Sometimes we go from this community. Sometimes we go from this state. Sometimes we go to our families. Sometimes we go away. There's all different ways that we go. And while we go, we are making disciples. It is the effect of us going. We, we go, we make disciples, and in the process, we teach. We baptize. We do those things that, that really define what it means to be us, the church. Capital T, capital C, the church. Now, when we have the phrase in there, we exist, we mean that literally. If South Spring, if there ever comes a day when South Spring ceases to live and teach and tell the gospel, ceases to follow the great commission that God has given us, we need to burn it. It needs to be burned to the ground or maybe sold to a bank or becomes a Mexican restaurant or something else that Tyler desperately needs, right? So this is what it's, that's what it needs to become because at that point, no matter what you call it, it isn't a church. It's no longer a place where the church gathers. That's all it is that it's a building. That's, that's just a building. The building becomes the church when we show up. We are the church, and when we show up, I, I will never forget, I love one of my first sermons I ever heard Pike Weisner preach. He was doing the children's, the little children's moment, 
Yes, we used to do little children's moments. And he, he got up and did the, you know, you all see the, here's the church and here's the steeple, open it up and there's the people. And he said, that's wrong. That's a mistake, kids. Don't believe that. The truth is, here's the church. This is the church. That's the, we're the church. And that's, that is what makes the church the church. And it's vital that we continue to live these things out. Now, we also have mottos. And these are models you'll hear, if you're new here especially, you'll hear them tossed out all the time when people are especially making decisions, when we're trying to decide stuff. You hear these all the time in our leadership meetings and, and others. Things like, we're equipping the next generation, right? This, these are the kind of things that show up on t-shirts, that show up in our conversations. That's what we're doing. That's one of the key things that God has called us as a church to do. He continues to bring us children and pregnant women. And so we, it is our job to, to equip the next generation and only God knows what they're going to face. Um, only God knows what, our, what it's going to mean to be a Christian in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in our nation, much less the rest of the world. Um, I may reference again later, but listening to a couple of podcasts this week, my normal podcasts were on hiatus, and so I went back and listened to some older ones I'd recorded from before. And it was shocking to me when I listened to secular podcasts how Christianity has no place in the conversation. It's, it's wild how you'll have two sides arguing. Hall and I were watching a couple of people argue um, about, about two friends, alleged friends, who are arguing about Christianity and what is its role. And, and the Christian is just completely on the defense, completely trying to defend himself, and can't do it at all. And the other people are, are like there's the reasonable one is an agnostic who's in the middle of the conversation. It just... It just smacked of the unbelievable levels of ignorance on everybody sitting there talking. I mean, we're like, it's, we were both going like, this is just painful to watch all of this. Listening to another podcast arguing about the freedom of speech in America, and you've got two sides arguing, should we have freedom of speech? Should we not have freedom of speech? Like, that's actually the debate going on. Should that be stripped? Because it's not safe, because it's racist, because it's whatever. And that argument is going on. And the, and the main argument for freedom of speech was someone saying, I used to be one of those closed-minded, bigoted Christians, but because of freedom of speech, I was converted out of that. I was talked out of that. And so now, I now know the truth that Christianity is a bunch of hogwash, and it's a bunch of lies, and freedom of speech is what allowed that to happen. That was the best argument that that side made, and the other side was saying, no, that type of speech should be shut down. This was not a debate about Christianity, though that's what it turned into, it was a debate about freedom of speech, and the Christian voice had no place, no role in it. And they weren't even apologizing, they weren't even thinking that someone might listen to it and disagree. That doesn't cross the mind. That's where we are. And what are kids going to be facing with that? Man, in our culture, we've got to be equipping them. That's why, as a church, we come together on Sunday mornings, and, and especially on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, other times, and we pour into one another, and we pour into our kids and each other's kids to try to help them learn and grow for these principles. Another common one, and maybe the first one that I ever heard when I came here, was that every member is a minister. At South Spring, everyone has a job to do. Now, it is possible that your job is to heal. Maybe you've been badly churched, or poorly churched, or unchurched, or traumatically churched, and you need to come someplace where it's safe to heal, and that's your job for a while, is to come here and heal. And we appreciate, understand, and support that. For others, though, for the rest of us, we have a job to do like equipping the next generation. But we all have jobs to do here at this church. This church has that. And we also, those are from the principles of Ephesians 4, if you want to go look at those. We reference the equipping the next generations about four times a year when we do the um, devoted Sundays, Ephesians, and that comes from the principles of Deuteronomy 6, 
pouring into the family and then how we make those things happen. And we have these things called pillars. The pillars serve to remind us of the basic fundamentals of how we personally as a local church go about accomplishing this great commission. Listen, there's, there's so many pillars that could be up there for a church. You could have so many different things. These are the ones that we focus on because you can't focus on everything all at once. And so these are the ones that we focus our attention on. And in fact, one of them, really the one I'm talking about today, really is just emphasizing our focus. That we focus on just a few things, and that's devotion. There's really two pillars, and then the third pillar is there to enforce the other two. And that's what I'm talking about today is the de devotion. So let's define terms. Um, years ago when Paul and I uh, led a, <clears throat> a discipleship program where students, young men and young women had to define terms as part of the program, devotion almost always came up at some point. And usually they came to a great answer. And that answer, I think, is some version of this wholehearted pursuit. A wholehearted pursuit. There's a couple of things need to come with the idea of devotion. One, it can't be passive. You can't passively be devoted. It has to be an active thing, something that you're engaged in. That's important. It also can't be half-hearted, we'll say. It can't be half-hearted, right? It can't be divided. It's got to be fully one thing. Um, a friend of mine, um, when, he is, when, he, when he is choosing a drink, an adult beverage, he wants the mere drink. He doesn't want ice in it. He doesn't want mixed anything. He doesn't. That's where the word mere comes from. Just, it actually is an alcohol term. It just means just that thing and nothing else. And so when you read like mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, what he's doing is saying, listen, take every, all the ice is out. All of the mixes are out. All of the everything, out, all the water. I just want mere, what is Christianity at its fundamental mere level. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. All Christians need to read it to get a good concept of what is Christianity at the merest level. So it's not enough. The, the, the idea that we would say Jesus Christ is a part of my life is just an error. That is not devotion. That's just an addition. A devotion is if you say that he is my Lord and my King and my Savior and my Father and my friend. And when you look at those words, Lord, King, Savior, Father, friend, for example, these, those indicate loyalty and something beyond loyalty. And that is, that thing beyond loyalty is devotion, a wholehearted pursuit. Listen to Jesus' words when I talk about passivity. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. But seek first active priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Notice that we, a lot of people quote the be, be anxious passage. We quote it, but they don't quote the verse before it. Be anxious for nothing. I've heard people use that as some kind of command, like, therefore, if you're feeling anxious, you're disobeying God. I think that's just silliness. Um, as he's not describing an emotion here. It's not just like, oh, uh, there's a spider. Oh, I just sinned. Like, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is when you are focusing your attention on something other than his kingdom. See, if we seek first his kingdom, we don't have time for a lot of the other stuff. We don't have the energy for a lot of the other stuff. You go, oh, I'm, I'm anxious about the, your finances. Okay, sure, we all are. Here's an idea. Seek first his kingdom. What would, what would his kingdom demand of us? 
Do that first. I'm, I'm anxious for my life. I'm anxious as I grow older. I'm anxious for my health. I'm anxious for my children. I'm anxious for my... Yeah, get it. Absolutely. We, we get that. Jesus understood those concepts and said, here's a thought. Seek first His kingdom. Let you focus on seeking His kingdom. You probably can't do anything about the things you're anxious about anyway. But you could be more passionately, more fully, more wholeheartedly pursuing His kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm, this is a funny thing. I've been teaching this for years and years and years based on the assumption that Tony Campolo in a talk years and years ago when he referenced Plato's pyramid um, knew what he was talking about. And, and I'm a little bit heartbroken because I've checked. Now I have a philosopher in the family and I checked with him and he's like, yeah, no, Plato didn't do that. And, and so then I checked with one of Mark's professors and he's like, I got nothing. There's nothing out there. So I don't know whether I should call this Plato's Pyramid anymore, um, which I've been doing with, sorry, with the Forge program now for 15 years. It's, but, it, but the concept works. It is a pyramid. Let me get a pyramid up on screen and show you what I'm talking about here. So when you talk about a pyramid, the idea, the concept, whoever deserves credit for it, um, I'll give it to Tony Campolo, um, although he gave it to Plato. If you start at that base and you were to put everything that mattered to you on the base in your life, everything, the tiniest thing, the biggest thing, there's so many different things that we talk about as Americans or as Christians or as Baptists or as, or as Texans or as family members or as people in Tyler or you pick it, right? And you put all those things on the bottom. And then you start moving the base up the pyramid. Up and up and up and up and up. There's room for less and less things. And things have to slide off. There's only room for a few things halfway up. There's only room for less things. I don't know if you've ever done this exercise. If you've ever done any leadership training, that's always the case. They always do this. They will, John Maxwell used to hand out like a hundred cards with things that matter to people. And he would say, go through them and throw out half of them. Now throw out the, half of the rest of them. Now get down to 10. Now get down to three. Now get down to one. Same concept. We all need to do this. By the way, according to Tony Campolo, allegedly Plato, whatever is in the tip, that's God. Whether you call in God or not, that is your God. Whatever is the primary motivator in your life, that thing that's only room for one thing and that everything else would have to go away, that's God. And as you'll see, Jesus teaches very clearly that everything but him must be taken off the pyramid until there's only room just for him. He will literally use as the term, forsake everything, which we're going to come to in a moment. What must fall off the pyramid in order for the triune God to be the one God to be first? So devotion is active and intentional pursuit. Being devoted means submitting all other aspects of your identity under that one thing. So what about things, what about uh, when things are part of that devotion? Because here's but we always had fun with family, friends, country, career, church, etc. Those are things that compared to Christ have to come off. Other aspects of our identities. This is one of the things that, that bugged me in this, in this last election. And as we've worked on identity politics in America, which is fascinating to me because that's a really good Christian ideal, by the way, identity politics. Meaning we vote or we give or we protest or we whatever based on our identity. But understand, as Christians, we only have one fundamental to our identity, and that's Christ. We don't vote as any other kind of block. We vote as Christ's children. We serve as Christ's children. We, we act in the church as Christ's children. This is what we are first and fundamental. It's what we are. 
All the other identifiers may matter, they may be significant to our identity, but they are not in competition. All of them have to slide off the pyramid. All of them. That's what it means to be a Christian, really, fundamentally, as we're committed to the idea that there's only room for that one thing at the apex of the pyramid. All the rest of these things are gifts from God, and He's entrusted them to us. In Christianity, we use the term stewardship for these gifts. You've probably heard that if you've been in church for a while. It means we don't own them, we tend them, we caretake them, we're responsible for them. They're gifts that He gives us, but that fundamentally they're His. I answer to Him for the usage and shepherding of everything He gives me. Therefore, though I am only devoted to Him, here's what would always throw off the students, is I would say, so you're saying I could, if, the, if you get this right, I'm devoted to God, so I guess I can't be devoted to my wife. And that would always freak them out. I can't be devoted to my church. I can't be devoted to my children. And they would panic and try to come up with a whole new definition, which is a mistake. Of course, that is the right definition. Because what it comes down to is the reason that I love and serve and sacrifice my wife is because I am devoted to Christ. That's, the fund, that's a natural consequence of being devoted. You can't be devoted to Christ and not be devoted to what He commands, to not do what He instructs. That's how that works. I don't, this is a mistake people make. I'm not devoted to my wife because of my wife. I'm not devoted to my children because of my children. They will fail me. They will, I'll be able to justify all kinds of misbehavior if I go, oh, well, I mean, as great as Ginger is, I mean, this other, and by the way, probably delusional, but I could still justify, hey, I could do this because she's not perfect. She's failed me in this way. Therefore, I get to whatever over here. And God's going, um, well, I mean, she may have failed you, but I didn't stutter. I was very clear about the fact that you're mine. I bought you with a price and you serve me. You didn't serve her anyway. She's not your evaluator. I'm not going to get to heaven someday. And God say, you know, that my judge is still going to be him, not my wife, not my parents, not my children, not you, not anybody else. God alone is our judge. He may call witnesses. That may get uncomfortable. But, but he will, he's still going to be the one who makes that judgment, right? My devotion to God dictates my relationship to my spouse. It dictates my relationship to my children and you and my choices about career, and my friendships, and my calling, and my politics, these are all dependent on my identity in Christ. Those are first. The, but they must, all of these must keep their role and position as gifts from Him, submitted, subordinate to Him. I don't get to act or serve or make choices based just on my preferences, on my desires. Colossians three twenty three and 24 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. By the way, that would include ourselves. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I'm a Christian in a way that's not like these other things. It isn't just that I'm more Christ follower. It just, it's not just that I am more a Christ follower than male or white or straight or Texan or American or a member of SSBC or put whatever your preferred pronouns or other preferences you have there. What you take with all of those other aspects of our identity at some point in your life is you're going to have to take them all and set them up on a stack of rocks and run a knife through them and let them bleed out and then set them on fire and burn them to ash. Because that's what we're called to. Everything else... Philippians 3, 8, Philippians 3, Paul, Paul, basically Philippians 3 is Paul's sermon on devotion. 
Starting in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Starting in verse, jumping to 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. All those good things that God gave us are still loss compared to knowing Him. Much less the sin. Sacrifice is when we know that someone is devoted. That's when we know. Um... I remember so distinctly my dad, who was, is pretty tight. You know my dad, he's pretty tight um, when it comes to finances. He's a, good, he's a good financial advisor, but he doesn't throw the money around. And so I remember as a kid, I was 11, I remember distinctly, I'll talk about this in the next few weeks, when, when he handed me a check one day, couldn't go to church, folded up a check, handed it to me and said, put this in a plate for me today. And of course, being a kid, 11 years old, I, I, I immediately, as soon as his back was turned, looked at it, and I, had, I didn't know there was that much money in the world. Wasn't that much money, but today's standards. But it was, I was like, and here's what I knew at that moment. This whole church thing, not a joke to my dad. And this is a man who buys one candy bar and splits it among the family. And he has put several zeros in a check to a church that so far as I can tell, we're getting nothing from. But he's like, yes, I'm serious about this, right? This is a, this is a big deal. And I knew that because when my, where my dad put his money. Or here's another one for us as men, especially where we're willing to look foolish. Now, that's not something men do well when we look foolish. It was always sad when we worked out at Pine Cove and you'd do a kids' conference and you'd see some dads in the front running around with the college students doing all the hand signs at the young kids' camps. And then there were always a few dads in the back with their hands in their pockets, unwilling to engage in the, the fun activities because, God forbid, they look silly in front of, I guess, other men who they don't know. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with us. But, but like standing like this. And then would really break your heart is when you had the seven-year-old boy standing next to him with his hands in his pockets. You know, he wants to be up there running around doing all those hand signs and everything, but... He's not going to embarrass himself in front of his dad. When, when a man's willing to look foolish, when somebody's willing to look foolish, when they're willing to give, when they're willing to sacrifice the things that matter most to them, like their pride, you know it matters. I assume that what I want for my life is not trustworthy. I assume that only he can be trusted in what he wants from me. And when things come in competition, they have to come in submission to him. If you identify more with anything other than Christ, it is death. It is just a form of death. When I sacrifice all other things, which involves killing them to God, it is an identity founded in being resurrected after the death of all other aspects of my identity. Here's what's wild, is how when we sacrifice these things to Him, how often He gives them back in the proper place. In fact, He gives them back better than the way we sacrificed Him. Galatians 2.20 starts this way, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So what it means to be a Christian, is to be crucified with Him. In, our, in the um, uh, <clears throat> Reconstructed Faith uh, podcast that we've done, we've gone through, like, is the Bible immoral by today's standards? 
And what we kept running into over and over, and especially when we got to sin and sexual sin, was the fact that it's so hard to even have the conversation where the Bible has the conversation. Should I be allowed to do this or not? Should, if I prefer this, should I be allowed to behave with this or not? When I did, and, and realizing, we kept coming back to like, of course, fundamentally as Christians, I have no rights. I have none. I don't get to choose these things. He is my Lord and Savior. He's not just my, I don't know, my boss. I just like, you know what, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to go work someplace else because I don't like this situation. It's not that easy. This is, this is our Lord and Savior. What defines us more? Our social status or Christ? This is going to be a consequence. This is something we're probably going to have to choose. We haven't always had to. Sometimes they go together, but not much anymore. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the listening this week and realizing that the Christian voice is losing any place in our conversations in our country. What's really scary is how often, if, and if you're not in this world, you don't know this, but uh, the Christian voice is mostly lost in academia. And what's really weird is how often it's being lost in seminaries. Um, that scares me a little bit when we're going to be training up a whole generation of leaders and teachers who do not get to have a Christian voice even there. How about financial status? This is a big one for a lot of us, especially in Tyler where there's a lot of wealth. Financial status becomes something that we say, this is a big deal. Maybe this takes the tip of the pyramid for many people. It's scary to not have financial status. It's scary not to have those things in place. But not surprisingly, Jesus spoke to this as well. They, by the way, notice these don't always come in competition. And financial status, like family, which we're going to talk about in a second, have a proper place in that pyramid. It's just not the peak. So here's what Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now notice, again, this is key. This language is very key, going back to our pyramid picture. Only one thing gets to be master. It's not wrong to be motivated by finances or motivated by social status. Those aren't wrong things. But they cannot be our ultimate motivator. What they can't be is our master. They only can be servants to him. Family, and this is a really hard one. I, I, would be, I wouldn't want to know that if you did a survey before this morning, if you did a survey of our church members and said, what's the most important thing in your life, how many people would say family? Like that scares me in the Christian church today is how often we say that, and that's just idolatry. Your family, by the way, cannot, afford, cannot support your identity. They don't have the psychological health to support your identity. Even if they're psychologically healthy, you're crazy enough that you're going to destroy them if, they, if you try to build your identity on your family. They're going to fail you and you're going to fail them. Here's how Jesus communicates this, by the way. He's, he's, I, I get that he's not super clear here. Being sarcastic. Luke, uh, in, in, in Luke starting in 14, starting in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, I don't think he means hate here as in you need to hunt them down and make bad things happen to them. That's clearly, I think clearly what he means is relative to your relationship to him. You have to take them out of that first position. Whoever does not bear his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. Jumping to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The version I grew up with said, forsake everything. Unless you, can for, unless you forsake everything, you cannot be my disciple. 
Now, granted, listen, this is important. We're terrible at it. We forsake everything, and then we go digging back through that rubbish heap. I know, I do it, you do it, we all do it. We all go digging through the manure pile of all the things we forsook for the cause of Christ, and we gather those things back, and we hold them close to us until we're reminded, oh yeah, you know what, i got to get rid of that, and we throw it away again, and then, like a dog returning to vomit, we're like, oh, you know what, I kind of missed that pile of manure, and you go back and... I, I, that's us. Welcome to the human race. But still, the, competi- the, 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 the conversation I think that Christ is having is we're, we're always doing that. We're always getting rid of it. There are always competing philosophies and priorities. There will always be distractions. D.A. Carson, who's a Bible scholar, said this. Uh, my wife posted this this week and showed it to me. I was like, oh, good timing. This goes in the sermon. People do not drift toward holiness. Now listen, maybe, maybe we could have before the fall. I don't know. We can discuss that later someday. Maybe before the fall, humans drifted towards holiness. I don't know. But we don't since the fall. We drift towards death. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control ouch, and call it relaxation. I'm not going to read that one again. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves that we have been godlessness. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That's brilliant and very painful and convicting. Holiness is found in Him and our identity is in Him. Understand, by the way, if you work your tail off on all these things, you still won't achieve holiness. It doesn't come, it doesn't come through our behavior even through this. And that's not what... D.A. Carson is saying. The idea, though, that we think somehow we're just going to naturally drift in that direction, that's like saying marriage, marriage is like jumping in two canoes and drifting downstream in marital bliss, right? If you've married more than about seven minutes, you know that's not true. It is, it is like trying to te- keep two canoes together paddling upstream, and sometimes there are rapids, and everything is pushing you apart and away, and everything is always pushing you the wrong direction. The general current is always against us in this fallen world. That's the case. But by we, by the way, when I say because of what he has done, we pursue, we strive, we seek holiness. It's because of what he's done. He set us free to seek these things out. By we, I mean each of us, but I also mean all of us. Now, here's one of the many cool things about the church. When we each go about doing this, it creates a multiplication effect. In fact, even better than that, it creates this gestalt concept. If you're familiar with gestalt as a, as a word, meaning the total is greater than merely the sum of the parts. When all of our families come together and form a church, the multiplication continues to spread out. The Ephesians 4 concept, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, of each individual part coming together to form something greater than just the spread of the parts. We need each other. We can't do it without each other. Um, I don't always show memes, but this meme struck me just this week um, that showed uh, if it says if I'm if I'm a Christian but I don't need the church was a photo, so anyway we'll just let that sit. Okay, each each person singing as an individual but all singing the same song with our various gifts creates something special. 
it creates a thing called harmony. Um, I think it would be cool for us to take a second and experience that. So here's, here's what I want us to do. Um, we're going to go ahead and stand. And I'm going to, we're as standing, I'm going to wrap up the sermon standing. But as I move into the last part of the sermon, here's what I want us to try. Everybody stand, if you will. I want us to sing the doxology. Now, we're relatively low attendance, not surprising, on January 1st. Um, but I think we can still fill this room. And the first time, um, we're going to sing through it with everyone just using their normal, everybody singing the melody. Okay? Everybody's going to sing the melody, which is beautiful. But the second time through it, if you know harmony at all, I want you to bust out with your best harmony. Okay? So first time melody, second time harmony. Ready? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I went harmony. Sorry. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Second time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Okay, that's the magic. So melody is powerful. Stay, just go ahead and stay standing because I'm about to make you stand anyway. Acts 2.42 <clears throat> says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And that's what we do. That's why we do it. We're just doing our best to follow their example. But I want you to listen to this as I wrap this up. As we talk in terms of devotion, here's the question. Are we failing to put Him first and enjoy His gifts in submission to Him? Think on your life. Is there anything that you've put above Him in the priority list? Are we praying to anything else? Trusting in anything else? Seeking first anything else? Are we as a church devoted to what He is devoted to? What needs to slide away? What needs to hold our attention? What about our personal lives? What are we putting under Him that doesn't belong? The reminder is that we get to do this. This isn't behavioral modification. We are free to enjoy the abundant life He gives us because He purchased it for us. This is not behavioral modification. This is freedom. It is who we are and what we were always meant to be. What good gift has God given you that you have prioritized ahead of Him? Jettison it. Lay it down. Let it go. Toss it. Burn it. Take a stand, repent, and don't look back. Blow it a kiss, cut the line, walk away, drop the weights, shake it off, block their number. <laughs> Shove all in and forget plan B, grow up, cut the anchor, burn the ships, and swallow the keys. Forget what is behind and strain towards what lies ahead. 
Let us press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 2-4 says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and women, who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So to, as we have a time now where we sing together and we enjoy that fellowship, pray, listen to the Spirit, go back through that list. So anything that's out of priority, anything out of whack, anything that needs to just go away. And let's listen to what the Spirit has for us as we sing, as we pray, as we listen. If you've been through the welcome home process, and, and, and as Paul was saying, maybe, maybe part of your New Year's resolution is I need to get more committed, be more involved. I need to develop a close friendship, close friendships here in the church we're going to talk, keep talking about that stuff over the next few weeks as well. Maybe you've been through the welcome home process and you've been postponing, installing, joining. You can come do that as well this morning. However the Spirit leads you today, I pray that you will listen.